about you, but I didn't grow up in a, in a Christian home. Um, for, for me, Easter was kind of unique. I was an only child. I was a little bit um, weird, but my, um, my, my, my parents would, would hide Easter eggs, and I would set like a stopwatch because I was so competitive, and I would find them, and then we'd have a little breakfast, and, and then we'd shower, and then we'd go to the horse track. Um, I, I grew up thinking resurrection was the name of a horse. Um, and we would, we would bet at Hollywood park. That's, that's, that was Easter for me. And I, I, I didn't know much about the significance. I go to church like seventh or eighth grade and in high school, oftentimes I, I would ride my bike to church and, um, there'd be moments where people would say he is risen and someone, the whole crowd would know what to say. He's risen indeed. And I, 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 I didn't even know what that meant. Um, and I think for some of us, like when we really think honestly, like what does the resurrection actually mean for our life? Have you ever just wondered about that? Like what really makes Easter so special? Because actually Easter, <laughs> the name Easter comes after like some goddess of rebirth and renewal. So we're like, oh yeah, we're going to celebrate Easter. Like, what, 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 what really makes this day so special? I mean, I, for some of us, it's, oh, it's the Easter eggs. But that's just weird because bunnies don't lay eggs. Like, I, I, like some of you are, like, thinking about that for the first time. But, like, that, it's just weird. And I don't know if any of you like peeps. I think that's weird. Like, just these little chicks, and some of you just like to bite into them. That's just weird to me. I just, I don't get it. But Easter, like, what, what really is the significance of this day? What makes it so special? And, and what's interesting is uh, Marshall McLuhan, who was a master in talking about communication, he'd often say that the medium is the message. And you know what's even interesting? Just as we were worshiping, I was, I was looking up and I was reminded of a professor at uh, North Park University, Soon Chow Ra. He's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. But he said that most churches that were architected, if you look up, was architected as an ark almost in a sense of like to come in here from a broken and difficult world and you could like come in here and, and, and actually like experience like some sense of safety. Um, but it's kind of a weird kind of picture because what we're actually called to be is to go out into the world that is both broken and beautiful. And when you have a healthy understanding of resurrection, it changes it. I mean, even in this building, as I showed, this is kind of like built after this, this kind of ship. But even if you look in this space, have you ever wondered what's back here? I didn't do this at the 9 a.m. Have you ever seen this? I don't even know if it can fully open. That's the baptismal. So the, the whole idea of this baptismal in there is the sense of like this whole empty tomb. Actually, now that's, that's, that's open. I don't know how to fix that, but it's okay. <laughs> I just broke it. But, but like the truth is, it's like this idea that there's something in there and you could like slide away. Like all of these like buildings, these old buildings were like telling a story with just the architecture, which I think is amazing. But what I want to do is I really want to just help you understand why is it that we say he is risen, he is risen indeed? Why, why is it that we, as Christ followers, take the resurrection so seriously? Why is it? And to do that, I want to read something um, that came from a mentor of mine. Um, I, I often read it um, on Easters for the last, I don't know, six, ten years. 
Um, even every Sunday that's not an Easter, the church would refer to it as a mini Easter, a mini Resurrection Sunday, because every time we gather, we should be reminded that the tomb is empty. But, but my mentor, John Orberg, wrote this, and I kind of added to it and made it my own a little bit, but he, he inspired me deeply. And so I, I don't want to try and <laughs> recite it. I, I want to get the words right because it matters. So here are these words. He is risen. He is risen indeed. So we're going to say together the greetings that has been used on this day for almost 2,000 plus years. I will say in a moment, Jesus Christ is risen, and you'll respond, he is risen indeed. But, but we have to do a little prep work first. So we're going to do this greeting, and then if you want to cheer, that would be okay. But here is what we acknowledge when we say this. There was a man named Jesus. He taught like nobody ever taught. He lived like nobody ever lived. He loved like no one has ever loved. He especially had a heart for people who were on the margins, for the sick, for the sinners, for the forgotten, for the poor, for the despised, for the disliked soldiers, for the excluded, for the afflicted, for the afflicted with affluence, for the afflicted with influence, and everyone in between. On Friday, his great courage got him arrested. His great love led him to the cross. His great heart stopped beating on Friday. That which looked like a horribly tragic ending to such a wonderful life turned out to be the greatest sacrifice of love in the history of our world. And then, on Saturday, the world went silent. On Saturday, evil proclaimed victory. On Saturday, the disciples wondered if the last three years was all for nothing. On Saturday, heaven was just getting started. On Sunday, a stone got rolled away. On Sunday, death lost its sting. On Sunday, the grave lost its victory. On Sunday, hell was defeated. On Sunday, death was dethroned. Darkness was derailed. The devil was demotivated. On Sunday, the tomb was emptied and hope got fulfilled. On Sunday, faith was vindicated. The prophets were validated. The soldiers were aggravated. The disciples were animated. On Sunday, sin lost, shame died, hope soared, and love one. On Sunday, you got something beyond yourself to live for. Something beyond your life to die for. Something beyond your death to hope in after you die. This is, therefore, the central proclamation of the greatest victory over the darkest enemy by the noblest hero for the loftiest cause in all of human history. If anything, in this sorry, dark, broken and fractured world is worthy of celebration. The reality that one man whose name is above every other name is not dead, but rather he is alive. So church, Jesus Christ, he is risen. risen Yes, yes, yes. Now, hear this. On Friday, Christ died. On Saturday, we all wondered and waited. And on Sunday, Christ rose. And someday Christ will come again. We live in between Resurrection Sunday and his return someday. What was inaugurated and validated in his life, death and resurrection, is where we live. In between the broken and beautiful, in between the now and not fully yet. And as Barbara Brown Taylor once said, we are the Easter people living in a Good Friday world. We are people of the resurrection living in a world where a perfectly innocent man gets crucified. We are the people of hope in the midst of profound sadness, trauma, and evil. And yet, this is what Resurrection Sunday is all about. 
and every day afterwards. And yet, it is so, so, so much more. This is the truth. It's not just the fact of an empty tomb. And some of you are like, what's with this black curtain right here? Did you guys build a tomb? No, there's just the greatest drum set ever. And if you've never seen it, you have to just sneak behind it. We just didn't want to distract any of you who are new here. But the truth is, some of you, some of you are just wondering, but like, I get it. Like a cross, he died on a cross, he rose. Like, what does that actually mean for my life? And that's what I want to talk about today. Because if you can actually grab hold of these truths straight from Scripture, I think it will profoundly change the way that you see yourself, the way that you understand Holy Weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and what it means moving forward from this day on. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. You're just going to see this, the Scripture reference up on the screen. If you need a Bible, there's Bibles that have been donated in the pews. Or if you have a smartphone, you can just look at BibleGateway.com. And this is, the, this is the beautiful piece. Is I love when the church is just in the Scriptures. We've been walking through two books of the Bible this year, Luke and Acts. And it's been amazing to see uh, how the scriptures are just coming to alive for many of us. We'll start in verse 57. This is the burial of Jesus. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple, a Talmudim, an apprentice, a student of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, wouldn't you just love to be known as that? And the other Steve and the other Mary was sitting there opposite the tomb. Verse 62, the next day. The one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, they're referring to Jesus as like the, the, the language that we would refer to as the devil. These chief priests and religious leaders are like, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. And the first one was what, what Leonard talked about on Good Friday, how he referred to himself as the son of God, which was heretical to the religious leaders. Verse 65. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. Now, get this. You've got a rich man from Arimathea. He goes, hey, I want to give Jesus a proper burial. So he like builds this like cave. And he, and, he, and he ends up getting it all ready. He goes to Pilate. Let me do this. Gets them all set. Puts a stone. Rolls a stone in front of it. The religious leaders are, whoa, whoa, whoa. This guy, they start to think to themselves. This guy has been saying He's going to die, and in three days later, going to rise again. And this guy actually raised Lazarus from the dead. Oh, man. If, if this, this word gets out, this is going to be bad for business. So they go to, they go to Pilate, and they're like, man, 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 please, please let us, let us, like, make sure that nothing, that no disciple, not one of these high school students, because that's the, that's the age of the, the Talmudim, the disciples of Jesus at that time, 
Don't let any of them be able to go sneak in and steal the body. So we're going to secure it. We're going to lock this thing up. We're going to just put a bunch of guards in front of it. We are going to ensure that that dead man stays in there. Because they're scared. They're scared. And look what the scriptures say. Go into chapter 28. After Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, and the other Mary, we just call her Proud Mary, and Proud Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of them that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus went, Jesus met them, Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So you have this amazing moment where all of a sudden you've got these guards who are just standing there going, Nobody's coming in. Nobody's coming in. And then the whole earth starts to shake. And then all of a sudden you just see an angel of the Lord who looks like lightning and he begins to move a stone and he just sits on it. And then all of a sudden the soldiers like knees buckle, freak out. They take off running. And then what's so amazing, and the, and the gospel writers are so smart what they're doing. You got to remember women, women were property back in the days of Jesus. And Jesus kept lifting up kids and lifting up women and lifting up Samaritans and lifting up people who had been marginalized. And the first people that Jesus shows himself post-resurrection are to women. To say, hey, trust these women. Trust them as they go off and tell. Now, imagine you're a guard. What do you do? Continues on, verse 11. While the women were on their way, they're headed to Galilee. Some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this, and this story has been widely circulating among the Jews to this very day. So the soldiers go back and they're like, seriously, seriously, you don't understand. Angel looked like lightning. Freaked us out. Body's no longer in there. And they're like, all right, all right. Chief priests, religious leaders are like, okay, what do we do? This is really, really bad. This is really, really bad. We secured it. We put soldiers. This is really, really bad. Here's what we're going to do. We're actually going to bribe you. And here's a large sum of money. And it's actually better for you. And it's better for your family. Because if you're the soldiers that let this person free, your whole family is going to suffer. So you're going to go with this lie. You gotta pretend that this happened, and here's a bunch of money. And the soldier's are like, okay. But have you ever wondered this? Would you die for a lie? Like, how many people go to their grave 
with a lie. I mean, like you think about Watergate. It didn't, it didn't go on very long till like a whole bunch of people are like, this, this is what happened, this is what happened, this is what happened. Like, like all of a sudden, even Matthew knows this story. It's like the soldiers couldn't keep it in. Even though they had the money, they're like, no, this is what's happening, this is what happened. We got, the chief priest told us to do this. That's amazing to me to think about this. But when Jesus meets the disciples, the rest of Matthew 28 is when he basically says that and calls them to go out and, and embody the Great Commission, to go out all throughout the world you have this power, this authority to go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father. And you know what's amazing? Is these high school students do it. And if you, if you study outside the scriptures, you study what the disciples, you should do it this week. Study how the disciples, each one of the disciples died. Study that. How did Philip die? You know, Philip, he, he, he was this kid from Bethsaida, like this little like fishing town. He like in his air Birkenstocks hears miles and miles and miles away that there's this, this like Roman Caesar by the name of Domitian. Much of Revelation is written about Domitian. And Domitian, everywhere he went, he had a whole bunch of choirs and elders behind him crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So the way that John even writes Revelation is basically saying Domitian's not it, Jesus is. And it's amazing is when you begin to study about Philip is that Philip actually goes to the city and the city, to enter into the city, had this massive gate. And if you walked under the gates, you proclaimed that Domitian was Lord and God of all. But Philip was like, that's not true. Because when Domitian dies, he's dead forever. But Jesus, he resurrected. He's alive. And so what did Philip do? Philip and his family, they roll to the city, and they start to walk to this gate, and they walk around it. And all of a sudden, the soldiers are like, hey, hey, walk under the gate. Proclaim Domitian as Lord and God of all. And Philip's like, not going to do it. He just keeps walking around. And all of a sudden, it becomes this spectacle. And because when you actually walked under, this is getting off track, but when you walked under, you were given a mark. And that mark allowed you to buy and sell and experience what was happening in the Agora, where they would buy groceries, sell stuff in the marketplace. That became known as the mark of the beast as you walked under because you were absolutely representing yourself with Domitian and Caesar and Rome and not Lord. So what you end up having is Philip is walking around it, walking around it, and then they grab his family. And they say, if you do not proclaim Domitian as Lord and God of all, they're all going to die. And on that day, Philip and his family died. You don't die for a lie. What did, what did those disciples see? And here's the truth. Religious leaders, Good Friday, I love Good Friday. I love the cross, but here's the truth. Religious leaders died. They just didn't come back to life. And the fact that Jesus came back to life was the thing that those first disciples were like, what in the You were dead. You were locked in that tomb. It was sealed and there was guards. And now you are appearing to us. And this is what actually captured the imagination of these disciples. And they began to actually understand that's what he has been talking about for three years. 
That's what he was proclaiming. That's what he was. There is an entirely new reality, an entirely new story going on. And now for them, they're like, we have to go tell the world. We have to go represent and represent Christ to this world because people die. Yes, they just don't rise again. And this story changed everything. But, but, what did it actually mean? Yes, it's, it's, it's amazing that the tomb is empty. It's amazing that Jesus came. But what does that actually mean for your life here in Elgin in the northwest suburbs? What does it actually mean for you? And I'm here to tell you it means everything. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want you to see this. It says verse 12, but we'll start just a few verses before because I think this is important for you all to see. It says in verse 1, Now, brothers and sisters, this is Paul writing, I want to remind you of the gospel, the good news. I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. And if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. And last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. This is Paul like speaking less of himself. And this is why, verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. I love that. This is what we preach. This is what we believe. This is what you believe. This was the good news. And then verse 12, if you have a Bible, look what it says. But if we, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So why is Easter so special? Why does Resurrection Sunday change everything? Why is it so important? we got to go back to the Old Testament. And remember, if you ever sinned, and all sin is, is when you live less than God's best. When you would sin, you would have to go to the temple. And what you would do is if you were poor, you would bring a pigeon. And if you were like middle class, blue collar, you'd bring a lamb. And if you were wealthy, you'd bring like a, a, a goat. And you would go and you would go to this temple. And you would have a moment where you would transfer your sins, your choice, your decision to live less than onto this animal. And that animal would die and its blood would spill and it would actually cleanse you and make you at one with God again. 
This is where atonement, at one, to atone, to be at one with God, this whole idea came from. And so you would lean up on this animal, transferring your sin onto this animal, recognizing this animal is taking your place. But imagine just going to the temple. You do that. And you walk out. And you see someone you can't stand. You have some anger fantasy. Or you see someone and has some lustful thought. And you're like, I got to do it again. And you go and you get another lamb or another pigeon. You transfer that sin onto that. And you just start doing this again and again. And that would cost some money. And this whole idea of sacrifice was big business for the temple. Because if you didn't have it, you could just buy it, a lamb at the temple. And they would upcharge it. And then you would come and you had a place to sacrifice with a temple lamb. And this got to a point where the people were like, I don't want to do this anymore. So what do they start doing? You can read in the book of Malachi. They started taking like three-legged, one-eyed, like pussy, like diseased lambs. And like, I'm just going to take the cheap one and I'll sacrifice. And God's like, this is really? You're not bringing your very best? You're, not, you're, like, you're like, you're just going through the motions. You're going through the routines. You're like, you're singing the songs and acting holy, but like you don't actually understand what you're doing. And he, here's, here's the truth. Jesus just died, and I, I, I didn't understand this for so many years, but m- much of my faith stopped on Good Friday, meaning that, that Jesus, I knew, had taken all the sins, all of the choices that I had made that were less than God's best. Jesus took all of that. In the past and the decisions I will make in the future, he took all of that. But here's what you have to understand. What Paul's saying is if Easter Sunday doesn't happen, then he didn't defeat sin. Then we're still in the same cycle of what do we have to do with that gap? Because religious leaders died all the time. What makes Resurrection Sunday so important and critical to our faith is this reality. He actually defeated it, which actually means you're forgiven. We don't live like that. We often live like we're less than. And sometimes when we feel that we're less than, we try to make other people feel lesser than us. And it creates a whole bunch of drama and trauma in the lives around us. But when you actually understand what Easter Sunday means is that you, just by receiving, are forgiven. You are more free than you actually understand. But without the resurrection, we're still in the cycle of our sins. This is what's so amazing about about Easter, Resurrection Sunday. It's not that we're just forgiven. But the way that Paul will write about it, too, is that we have this resurrection power. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave is within every one of you. Some of us play so small. But the truth is... Do you understand what what the writers are saying? You have resurrection power flowing through your veins. Like, Like you can actually see temptation, but you're like, no, 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 I don't want that. You actually can choose the harder right. You can do things that don't make sense. You can actually have a heart. You can put yourself out there. You can speak up to power. You can actually love those that people have marred. You can do the thing that Christ did. That's what it means to be the Easter people who live in a Good Friday world. It's not just with Easter Sunday that we are forgiven, which is massive in itself. But secondly, 
We have this power. But third, in the book of John, Jesus says, you know, it's actually really good for me to go. And the rabbi doesn't say that to his disciples. And the disciples are like, what do you, what do you mean? Isn't it not good for you to go? Like, I, we need you here. And he's like, no, 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 no. If I go, then the, my father's going to send the advocate, the comforter, the counselor, the Holy Spirit. He's going to guide you. Everywhere you go, he's going to be with you. He's going to show you. He's going to be your true north. He's going to help you actually embody what the kingdom of God and what I've been teaching you is all about. When you live your life attuned to heaven and attuned to the spirit, your life is going to look more like me. But also, it's not just about that with Resurrection Sunday that we have been forgiven. It's not just with Resurrection Sunday we have this resurrection power. It's not just with Resurrection Sunday that we have this Holy Spirit. There's an old hymn that often we say, Christ has died, Christ is risen. But the third line is the one that we often forget, that Christ will come again. And when Christ comes again, he's going to put this whole world to rights. That in Christ we have ultimate victory. There is going to be, if you read the last two chapters of Revelation, there's going to be no more death, no more rape, no more mourning, no more disease, no more sickness, no more evil, no more war. Everything's going to be put back to rights, and it's going to be Christ who does that. And you heard me say it, but we live in between Resurrection Sunday and his return someday. But we live with a sense of hope. We live with the sense of reality, though it does not make sense, and though our backs might seem up against a wall, though it might seem like we don't have the last word, and just like it might feel like we're living in Saturday today, the truth is, is that he's returning. And when he returns, it is him. And it's through him and by him and for him and with him that we will experience true victory. So why does Easter change everything? Because he's alive. Why does it change everything? Because you're actually forgiven. Why? Because you have power. Why? Because you have the spirit. Why? Because we win. And that's, that's, that's at the heart of it. But there's one more. There's one more. And the way that Paul would say this, I always think is fascinating. He would say that every single one of us who are Talmudim disciples, he uses a different word. He says that you're a temple. I don't know if you've traveled and been to other temples. I've been in Jerusalem. Uh, I've walked in the holy sites there. I've seen other temples that were dedicated to other gods and just went and saw the architecture. But the temple, the idea of a temple is where the divine would meet humanity. And this is the language that Paul describes you and I as Easter people is that we are temples. So that when we leave this place and we walk the streets of Elgin and we walk into the different marketplaces throughout the northwest suburbs this week, as we begin to engage with our family and we begin to engage with difficult and broken people in our broken world, we are temples. So that when people actually experience us, what are they experiencing? They're experiencing a taste of what Easter is all about. One of my favorite stories from Henry Now in his book, Reaching Out, a former student comes to see him at Yale and, and ends up taking him out. And when they, when they go and they have this epic lunch, and it's like an hour and a half, two hours, and at the end of it, this former student looks at Dr. Now and says, Dr. Now, when I'm with you, I feel as if I'm in the presence of Christ. And now and steps back and goes, wow, my son, it's the Christ in you that recognizes the Christ in me. And this, this is it. 
Can you imagine a world where we, as FCC Elgin, were these temples? We actually lived as a forgiven people. We lived with a kind of resurrection power, not for our own glory, but for and on behalf of those that are in need. We actually had the guidance and the wisdom of the Spirit, the comforter and counselor leading us, not just us going our own way and drifting, but us walking hand and foot in step with the divine. And we knew with such profound levels of hope, it doesn't make sense right now. And it feels a little like Friday some days, and it feels a little like Saturday some days, but we know Sunday's coming. We know his return is coming. And when that happens, everything's going to be put to rights. This is why Easter matters. So here's what I want to do. And oftentimes I love to preach and I love to open up the word and I love to teach you. But the main piece of my heart and desire is that you would actually know how to apply this in your actual life. And when you would think about this at some moment, that somehow you'd be like, oh, I know what to think or to feel or to pray or to say so that I could actually embody this on Monday or Tuesday. So if you feel comfortable and if you're able, I invite you to stand right now. Leonard sometimes will scream this from the front row when I'm teaching. Make it plain, Doc. Make it plain. This is my chance. So would you put your hands out? Leonard and Bria were talking about they couldn't even imagine looking back three years. And then just to think like where they are today. Think about the kind of person three, three years from today that you can become. Imagine that. Maybe you want your eyes closed. Maybe you want your eyes open. It doesn't matter. But with your hands open, I want you just to imagine this. I want you to imagine what Resurrection Sunday actually means for you. Do you feel forgiven? Or does the past Does the shame, does the worry, does the decisions, does the choices, does that just like well up within you and some days you just find yourself escaping? But what if if the most profound thought that you could think about is when God looks at me, he sees what Christ has done, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and I am free to be, not just freed from, but freed to become a disciple, a temple. What about power? Just think about how to imagine all of the power that raised Jesus from the grave is within us. And what, what, what could that mean for a city? What could that mean if we actually could hold that with such humility and trust? What's your relationship with power like? Resurrection power. Or maybe the spirit. Can you hear it? As Easter people living in a Good Friday world, we got to be people who can hear it. Hear the whispers, hear the promptings, hear the guidance, hear the comforter, hear the counselor, hear his words. And lastly, we are people of hope. 
Because Christ died, yes, and he rose 100. But he's coming again. And so every day, when it doesn't make sense, we still walk with hope. Not a whimsy, uncertain hope, but a hope that we know that God's goodness is on its way. We expect it. We know it. We have confidence because we've seen it. And all of that, if we can be those kinds of people, ask yourself throughout this week, when you start to drift, oh, remind yourself, I'm forgiven. That makes me exhale every single time. I got power. Wow. How am I going to use that power for good? I got the spirit of God within me. Do I hear it? And I got hope. You put all of that together in Christ's name, it's pretty unstoppable. It's pretty unstoppable. But all of that was because he was willing to go to the cross and not keep us in our sins, but to go to the cross and take them. And he paid it all. So God, I pray, I pray as we sing these songs, sing these words, that Easter wouldn't just be a day, but it would be special that today would mark a new reality moving forward, that we are forgiven people. We are a resurrected, power-filled people. We are a spirit-led people. We are a hope-filled people because we know that when you come, we win and you make all things right. We love you, God, and all God's people say, Amen.